Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 60. Last week, I wrapped up with Cleopatra and Antony, having retreated from the naval battle at Actium, handing victory to Octavian. Antony and Cleopatra would head to the western coast of Egypt, with Antony departing shortly after arrival, headed to Cyrene in an attempt to lead the army he had there. Cleopatra would sail into the Alexandrian harbor, acting like she was coming home victorious. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up at that point and working through the evolution of Roman rule in Egypt. And with that, let's get started. Antony was headed to Cyrene to take command of the four legions he had stationed there. But fate had other plans. Before he got to Cyrene, Lucius Pinarius, who had previously been appointed by Antony as the governor of Cyrene, received word that Octavian had defeated Antony. Then, Antony's messengers arrived, seeking an audience with the governor. Instead, the governor had them executed. You can probably see where this is going. Pinarius defected to Octavian giving the Roman council control over the four legions Antony so desperately needed. Antony was so distraught upon hearing this that he nearly killed himself and was only stopped when his direct subordinates convinced him to do otherwise, to live to fight another day. He would return to Alexandria, well, close to the city. He built a cottage for himself on the island of Pharos, the same island that held the legendary Lighthouse of Alexandria. Considering that this tower stood in the neighborhood of 330 feet, or 100 meters, and the island is small, it's safe to say that despite his cottage being described in some sources as being reclusive, he was never far from a good lookout spot, and you know what he was on the lookout for. Octavian's ships. Apparently, he named his new home the Tymenian, after the philosopher Tymen of Athens. Why this name? Well, Tymen was known for his cynicism and pessimism. About the same time, Herod makes an appearance. After the loss at Actium, Herod advised Antony to run from Cleopatra, or to kill her. Either way, to get away from her. I'll get to what Antony decided to do in a minute. And Herod was apparently still loyal to Antony, to the point that he traveled to Rhodes to meet with Octavian. At this meeting, Herod intended to resign from his appointed kingship, citing his loyalty to Antony and how this would make him an ineffective client to Octavian. But Octavian was so impressed by Herod's speech and sense of loyalty he allowed him to maintain his position as king of Judea. This had the effect of further isolating Antony and Cleopatra, and it worked out well for both Herod and Octavian. It didn't take long for the defeat to sour the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra. As early as the summer of 31 BC, it's thought that Cleopatra may have come to view Antony as a liability. At this time, she was preparing to flee Egypt, leaving control of the country to her oldest son, Caesarean. 
she was formulating a plan to take her fleet through the Red Sea to a foreign port, perhaps as far away as India. Here, she could live in relative peace, and if she took enough treasure, live out the rest of her life in comfort. But fate, along with the quick-acting Octavian, would thwart these plans. Quintus Diodus, the Roman governor of Syria, got word of her escape plans and passed the information along to Octavian. Octavian, or one of his lieutenants, then asked Malachius I, Herod's cousin and the ruler of the Nabataean kingdom, to intervene, and he did. As an act of revenge for the constant conflict between Herod and the Greek-Egyptian queen, Malachias burned Cleopatra's fleet, so no ocean escape for her. In fact, no escape at all. She remained in Egypt and attempted to negotiate with Octavian. But you're never going to win a battle of negotiation starting from a position of weakness. And she likely knew this, as at the same time, it's rumored she began testing the necessary reliability and dosages of various poisons on prisoners and maybe even on her own servants. She knew the clock was winding down, but she hadn't quite given up yet. About these negotiations. At the time, both Antony and Cleopatra were separately attempting to talk it out with Octavian. They both, via their own different envoys, sent different messages to the victorious Roman consul, who was reigning from Rhodes, at least for the moment, and apparently Octavian could have cared less about anything Antony sent him, as he only responded to the messages from Cleopatra. In her negotiations, she requested that her children inherit Egypt and that Antony be allowed to live in exile in the country. She would attempt to influence Octavian's decision by even offering him treasure from Egypt and the limited territory she still controlled. And, even before he made up his mind, she would attempt to sway him with extravagant gifts. But that wasn't her only negotiation strategy. She would threaten to burn herself, along with great amounts of her treasure, within her tomb, currently under construction. Octavian dispatched his diplomat, Thersos, to Egypt to relay a very important message. He would advise her to kill Antony, and in exchange, he would spare her life. Antony was warned of the message Thersos was relaying, and he had the diplomat captured, flogged, and sent back to Octavian, without a deal. Ultimately, the negotiations would produce no acceptable settlement. More on that in a minute. About the same time, Cleopatra had Caesarion enter into the ranks of the Ephibi. In this part of traditional Greek society, adolescent boys were put through a period of isolation from his prayer community, usually the world of his mother, where he was a child within that community. The Ephibi individually would need to hunt, rely on his senses on aggression, stealth, and trickery to survive. At the end of the initiation, the EFB was reincorporated back into society as a man. The overall idea was that if the community was ever threatened, its men would have these skills that they needed to protect the community. 
what could have been her motivation to do this to her son. She was likely now grooming him to be the sole ruler of Egypt. Curiously, at the same time, Antony had his son with his previous wife, Fulvia. Marcus Antonius Antillus followed the same initiation route. Back to the diplomatic negotiations. These led to nothing acceptable to Octavian, so he pursued diplomacy by other means, meaning open warfare. Octavian set out to invade Egypt in the spring of 30 BC. He would stop along the way at Tomea in Phoenicia. It was here that none other than Herod would provide the Roman army with supplies. From there, Octavian moved south and quickly seized Pelusian, near the junction of the African continent and the Sinai Peninsula, on the Mediterranean. At the same time, the multifaceted Roman poet, orator, politician, and apparently general, Cornelius Gallus, marched east from Cyrene. He would defeat Antony's forces near Peritonion, on the western Egyptian Mediterranean coast. Octavian, after winning at Pelusian, would march quickly to Alexandria. Surprisingly, after his defeat in the west, Antony returned to Alexandria and won a small victory over Octavian's tired troops outside the city's hippodrome. But one small victory is not a trend, and certainly wouldn't stop Octavian. Shortly afterwards, specifically on August 1st, 30 BC, Antony's naval fleet surrendered to Octavian, and shortly after that, his cavalry did the same. Everything was falling apart for Antony, and coming together for Octavian. Meanwhile, with Octavian's arrival in Alexandria, Cleopatra would hide herself in her tomb with her close attendants, and have a message sent to Antony that she had committed suicide. But she hadn't. Antony's reaction showed that he was despondent. Upon receiving the news, he would try to take his own life by stabbing himself in the stomach. Harry Carey. But the death wasn't quick. According to Plutarch, the first century AD Roman historian, while Antony was clinging to life, he was carried to Cleopatra, who was still hiding out in her tomb. Antony was probably very surprised she was there when he arrived. He would tell her he was trying to die honorably. In the end, he would explain to her that the only person she should trust in Octavian's court was Gaius Percolaeus. More on Percolaeus in a minute. When he died, Antony was 53 years old. Octavian would enter Alexandria, occupy the palace, and capture Cleopatra's three youngest children, the ones fathered by Antony. Actually, it hasn't even been a minute, and we're back to Percolaeus, the one Cleopatra was told she could trust. He proved otherwise. Percolaeus would use a ladder to climb into her tomb, where she was hiding. Then, he would detain her, preventing her from carrying out the threat to burn her treasures and kill herself. He then allowed her, well, likely her servants, to embalm, then bury Antony. After the funeral rites were complete, she was transported, essentially as a prisoner, to her palace. 
Well, by now it was her former palace, the same place where she and Julius Caesar had been held under siege so many years before. At the palace, Cleopatra would finally meet with Octavian. When she did, she told him candidly that she would not be led in a triumphal parade. Octavian promised that he would not execute her, but beyond that, he revealed no plans for her or the kingdom. Then, Cleopatra was told by a spy that in three days, Octavian was going to have her, along with her children, transported to Rome. Perhaps to lead that parade she so feared, a parade like the one years before led by the sister she hated, Arsenoa IV. Instead, Cleopatra would choose a different exit, the same one chosen by Mark Antony, minus the knife. She would kill herself with poison in early August 30 BC, when she was 39 years old. Most reports claim that it was either through the bite, or less direct poisoning from either the Egyptian cobra or an asp. In Egypt, it's thought that it may have been an Egyptian cobra, the one with the flat hood. But it could have been any of the local deadly reptiles, if it were a snake at all. Stories of the less direct route assert that the toxin was applied on a harsh scratch, or perhaps as an ointment. It's unclear if she carried out her plan in the palace or her tomb. Legend has it that two of her royal servants also took their own lives as soon as the former queen was confirmed dead. Her physician reported that after a post-mortem examination, there were no venomous snakes found, but there were two very small puncture wounds on her arm. But he did not rule out that these could have been the result of a needle. Just before she died, Cleopatra ordered Caesarean to flee to Upper Egypt, perhaps headed to Cushite Nubia, Ethiopia, or maybe even the alleged previous destination his mother desired, India. At the same time, he would take the name Ptolemy XV, but would reign for only 18 days. Octavian would lure him back to Alexandria, promising that he could rule as king from its capital. And the son of Julius and Cleopatra chose to believe his distant cousin Octavian. So he returned. A mere 18 days after taking the throne, well, what was left of it, Caesarean would be executed by Octavian on August 29th, 30 BC. Octavian was leaving no doubt as to who was Julius's true heir. And with Caesarion, so died any remnant of Ptolemaic Egypt, brought in by Alexander the Great and put asunder by the soon-to-be-crowned Augustus Caesar. And now Egypt was fully Roman, at least in terms of governance and control. For clarity, it would actually be just over two years later, in January 27 BC, that Octavian would take his new name and become the first emperor of Rome. But I'm not quite done with Cleopatra, as there are a few other interesting bits about her that didn't quite fit into the historical narrative. During her reign, she oversaw the construction of various temples to Egyptian and Greek gods. Not surprisingly, she also had a temple built honoring Julius Caesar. 
At the time, there was a sizable Hebrew population in Egypt, and she allowed the construction of a synagogue, perhaps the same one attended by Joseph, Mary, and Jesus a few decades later. She attempted to exercise tight control over the economy, imposing price controls, tariffs, and state monopolies for certain goods, fixed exchange rates for foreign currencies, and rigid laws forcing peasant farmers to remain in their villages during the planting and harvesting seasons. Economic troubles would drive her to debase her coinage, which included silver and bronze coins, but no gold coins like those of some of her distant Ptolemaic predecessors. And these economic and administrative measures were typical of dictators of the period. But overall, she wasn't typical. Cleopatra was an author of medical and cosmetic texts. Unfortunately, only fragments of these have survived. But these surviving pieces include remedies for hair disease, baldness, and dandruff. Now, I'm doubting any of these remedies actually work, as these conditions exist even today. Or maybe the true cure is on the missing fragments. She also authored a text listing weights and measures for pharmacological purposes. Aetius of Amida, a 6th century Greek physician, attributed a recipe for perfumed soap to Cleopatra. A hundred years later, another Greek physician, Paul of Egyna, preserved what are alleged to be her instructions on the dyeing and curling of hair. The authorship of these texts, though, is not without dispute as they may be nothing more than a conflation of her reputation with the writings from other authors. There is also dispute over her true ancestry. Of course, she was part of the Macedonian Greek dynasty, mostly named Ptolemy, Cleopatra, or Berenice. But it does not help that the identity of her mother is truly unknown. It's presumed that her mother was Cleopatra VI, Tryphena, the cousin-wife, or maybe the sister-wife, of Ptolemy XII. Given all the marriages of her ancestors for diplomatic reasons, there's little doubt that she had Persian and Seleucid relatives. But she may have had no Egyptian ancestors, as there's no record of any sort of marriage arrangements to the natives of the lands they governed. And when you stop and think about it, this actually makes sense as the diplomatic nuptials were to cement, at least for a while, the relationship between two independent kingdoms. There is no need for this sort of diplomatic strategy to maintain control over a land that you already hold control over. And that's it for the saga of Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, and Mark Antony in Egypt, leaving us about 30 years before the birth of Christ at which time, of course, Egypt was ruled by Rome, in what is commonly referred to as the Classical Roman period. The country was governed by a man known as a prefect, essentially a high-ranking official, usually with a military background. Outside of Egypt, these were usually the governors of less important regions. Perhaps the best-known prefect, at least today, was Pontius Pilate, more on him at a later date. But Egypt was different, essentially a special imperial domain, with greater treasure and strategically important grain production. 
other similar provinces would be governed by senators, but Octavian turned Augustus was particularly worried about a rival Roman securing Egypt to serve as a base for rebellion. And of course, the recent history with Antony and Cleopatra would largely be the reason for this insecurity. He established Egypt as an imperial province governed by a prefect he appointed from the men of the Equestrian Order. Members of the Equestrian Order were the class of citizens below senators, probably most relatable as knights, especially considering they tended to control the cavalry, hence the name. In Egypt, though, the prefect was akin to a ruling pharaoh, without the religious implications. Essentially, the replacement for the Ptolemaic rulers. He would bear the title Praefectus Augustulus, indicating that he governed in the personal name of the emperor, Augustus. A prefect of Egypt usually held the office for three to four years. An equestrian appointed to the office received no specialized training and seems to have been chosen for his military experience and knowledge of Roman law and administration. The military experience aspect will make more sense as I briefly cover their individual histories. A working knowledge of the particulars of Egypt, though, was secondary to his record of Roman service and the emperor's favor. The first such prefect was Cornelius Gallus. In 29 BC, he led a successful military campaign to subdue a revolt in Thebes. After his victory, he erected a monument at Philae to glorify his accomplishments. And with this, Augustus wasn't pleased, to the point that his conduct brought him into disgrace with the emperor, and a new prefect was appointed. After his return to Rome, Gallus committed suicide. The next prefect of Egypt was the similarly named Gaius Elias Gallus. The similarity between the names of the first two prefects has led to centuries of confusion. This Gallus would serve Rome in Egypt between 26 and 24 BC. He isn't remembered for much, except for an expedition to Arabia ordered by Augustus. The mission had a few objectives. First, the Romans wanted to explore the country and its inhabitants, and perhaps to establish peaceful relations with the natives. But if they weren't terribly friendly, Gallus was to subdue them. So why would Augustus care so much about Arabia? There were rumors of gold and other treasures on the peninsula. But the mission didn't go quite according to plan. In this era before GPS, their navigator proved either incompetent or working against Rome. He would lead them on a route that missed the necessary stops for potable water and other provisions Instead, the troops would suffer through the burning heat of the sun, foul water, and a lack of food. This either led to, exposed them to, or exasperated disease in the ranks, a disease the Romans had never seen before, and caused the strength of the army to decline dramatically even before encountering the native forces. And this led to the Arab forces driving the Romans not only from the Arab lands, but also from the marginal areas they held prior to the expedition, not according to plan. 
When Gallus returned to Alexandria, his forces were a mere fraction of what he had under his command when he departed. After this, Gallus was recalled to Rome, to be succeeded by Augustus' close friend and military commander, Gaius Patronius. Patronius would lead a campaign into the Kingdom of Cush in retaliation for a previous attack on Egypt, and therefore an attack on the Roman Empire. But, similar to his predecessor, he failed to gain territory. He did demolish the Cushite city Anapata before retreating back to Roman-held territory. Later, in 25 BC, the Romans were planning simultaneous missions against both Cush, which as a reminder is the same as Nubia, along with an attack on Arabia, a rather ambitious plan given their previous defeats. But before the Romans had moved on either front, the Nubians attacked. They would win some territory, enslave the residents, and destroy monuments to Augustus. Petronius would lead an inferior force, at least in numbers, 10,000 of his troops against 30,000 Nubians. Despite his 3 to 1 disadvantage, Petronius would chase them back to Nubia, and he wasn't done. He would dethrone the Nubian queen from her capital, enslave some of their populace, even sending 1,000 enslaved prisoners to Rome, perhaps for gladiatorial tournaments. Nubia, at least the northern part, would end up being a Roman client state. Their queen would retreat and rule the southern part of the country, later fighting the Romans from their remaining territory. Battles, defeats, and victories, all on a much smaller scale, would be traded for the next few years, ultimately ending with a peace treaty and trade relations. I guess if you can't beat them, and you don't really want to join them, you can at least stop fighting and start trading, on both sides of the equation. There's a bit more to the history of Egypt that will get us to the point where BC changes to AD, in the time when the poor exiles named Joseph, Mary, and Jesus arrive in the African former nation of Egypt. But there's not enough time left in this episode to sufficiently cover that small bit of history. So, it'll have to wait to next week. Join me then. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.